Hello, Revelers, and welcome to September. It is September 1st. I am bringing you part two, part deux, of Julie Hofling's epic story of everything about her and how to be like her and how to give back to your community and so much more. So, as I said, it's part two. That means if you didn't hear part one, you got to go back an episode and listen to part one where things won't make too much sense. She asked me to come back and do it again. And I tried to edit them and combine them into one and it just didn't work. So she gets a two-parter. As you know, my sponsors are betterhelp.com. That's better H-E-L-P and bookshop.org. Either one of those options give me a little bit of uh, money in my pocket to help fund this program to help fund literacy and smarts and mental health and all of these important things. So please use the show notes to find out all about both businesses that can be helpful to you and others that you may know and love. And you're going to hear a lot more about cultural exchange in this episode. Another thing I do is I'm a coordinator for EF, that's Education First, and it is an international student company, so people can go abroad from the States to other parts of the world, but more likely, you're an American listening to this and thinking, I don't really have time to or money to ship off someone to another country, so it's a lot easier and more affordable to bring a student here. If you are interested in that, again, there's a link in the show notes and I can tell you all about it and I can help you find your local coordinator. I live in Conifer, so I'm the Conifer coordinator, but it's a very cool program. I did it back in the early 2000s and loved it and loved the relationships that we made. And so it is just something that I believe in and wanted to keep doing in some way. So if you're interested in that, let me know. So without further ado, let's hear more from Julie Hofling. So Julie, last time we talked, there were a few things that we wanted to change. So why don't you start with whatever is most like pressing on your heart to say like, I screwed that part up and we'll go from there. Well, you had um, kind of mentioned, I feel like, out of the blue, probably it wasn't out of the blue for you um, because I think you have talked about community in your different interviews, but I, uh, it wasn't something necessarily that I talked about uh, or thought about ahead of time community. And so I kind of just in a, just off the top of my head, I thought about community in the most, you know, literal sense. I think you asked me like, what is community to you? And after I, I was kind of reflecting and I, and I feel like Community is really a group of people that are drawn together by a common purpose or a common value or goal or something like that. And so in light of that kind of definition, I I thought of other communities that that I'm a part of. And of course, our 
Matt Carmel, Class of 87 Facebook group is, is a cool community where we all have that common experience. There's another Facebook group that I became a part of that has really been the most active Facebook group that I have right now. And it's called Buy Nothing. And it's really, it's just like, if you want to give something to somebody or you, you have a need and you can put it out there and people can say, oh yeah, I have an extra one of those. Here you go. And uh, it's, you know, a lot of it is based on, you don't just like, you know, give something to the first person that, that says, oh, I, can I have that? But, you know, be creative and it's up to the giver to determine like the criteria or who they want to give it to. Anyway, so it's been very, very active, especially during COVID, but then especially going into the holiday season into the fall. And the first thing that I would observe different things, I I think maybe there was a, a, a person that was in the community that she's maybe Muslim or something like that, but there's a tradition where they just give something. And so she would go to Trader Joe's every day and buy extra food. And she would just take pictures of it and say, I have some extra food I got today. Does who, you know, would somebody like this? And my method of teaching has really changed a lot with COVID. Uh, I've, the way our schedule works, I'm able to have more office hours. So I'm able to really connect with students in a different way than I ever have before. And it's been, that's been like such a silver lining. I I probably mentioned that before, but I'm also, you know, seeing the need of my students more than ever before. And so I had decided I want to do like a giveaway um, at at Thanksgiving time. I want to like, I don't know, I want to like do a drawing for a free turkey or something like that. And so I put that out there. I have, so I have like 50 something students and um, I said, okay, so here's this, this drawing. If you want to enter the, this drawing for a free turkey, just, you know, fill out this Google form and, and all that. Well, one girl, she messaged me and said, um, you know, I, 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 I wouldn't mind having a free turkey, but I really suck at drawing. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, no, no. Um, <laughs> let me explain what a drawing is. You don't have to draw anything. <laughs> anyway, so uh, I, I only had uh, 10 or so students, 10 or 11 students who actually entered it. And I was curious to know why. And some of them just said, well, we don't eat turkey at Thanksgiving. We And they said, what do you have? And they have pozole and tamales and and all that. So they like turkey wasn't even a thing that would be interesting to them. So anyway, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to just go buy a turkey every day at Costco. I I decided I want to give a turkey to all of my students who wanted one because it wasn't like 50 wanted wanted one. I'm like, I can do 10. And so then at the, just right the day before, and I actually, after five turkeys, I couldn't store anymore. So I had to call Safeway. I'm like, can I like buy them and then store them in your freezer and then pick them up? And so on the last day uh, before I was going to deliver them, somebody had put out on the buy nothing group. um, Hey, I've got some extra groceries. If anybody, you know, wants them. And I thought, oh my goodness, wouldn't it be cool to not just give them a turkey, but maybe 
some of the other fixings to go with it. And so I just put it out there and I'm like, this is kind of last minute, but here's what I'm doing. And if anybody has like extra bag of potatoes or something like that, it would be kind of fun to give them a little bit more than they're expecting. And I had no idea the kind of response that I was going to get from that. I literally, I, I put them, put out that little message quick right before I, I left for church. And then by the time I got there, I had all these messages uh, back to me, public, public messages. And they were saying, we want to help. We want to contribute. What's your Venmo? <laughs> we want to like contribute. And I was like, okay, this feels really weird giving out my Venmo, but okay. If you, you know, if you feel like you want to contribute, then that's great. Um, thank you. And, and also food would be awesome too. And so of course it's not what I wanted to spend my Sunday doing because I needed to still prepare my, my lessons for the week. So it was kind of stressful, but uh, at the end of the day, I had met up with several people who had brought food to me or wanted to meet me at Safeway when I was getting the turkeys or whatever. And um, I had almost $900 of wow funds that were donated, like within hours, within hours. I was so, and I, I know several of the people in the group and one couple uh, just Venmoed me. They didn't even say anything on the Facebook group, but they just Venmoed me because I had the, I made it public in the group. $600 just wow. from one. And I like cried. I was so, I was so overwhelmed by the, the giving just that wanting to give. And, you know, they're telling me like, Oh, you know, you're so awesome to do this for your students. And um, we just, you know, we just want to be a part of it and, and all that. So um, I, it was, it blew my mind. It blew my mind. And so I was able to stop by the the store on the way down there. And I had this like two long tables set up um, with like all the potatoes and all the stuffing and all the, you know, cranberry and all this stuff. Um, and I said, so when they, when they arrived, so you can just go through the line and get whatever you want and then take, pick a turkey and then have fun. And I had been gifted so much that I also went back to my students before I went down there and I said, so I noticed that some of you didn't enter the drawing because mm, I don't know why, maybe you don't eat turkey, but if having, even if you don't eat turkey, I, I was, I was gifted some, some money um, by a group that I'm in on Facebook. And if it would bless your family to have like a gift card to a grocery store, so you could go get some other kind of groceries that you do like, let me know. And there were um, a few who uh, reached out to me with that. So I was able to go get gift cards and then they came by and picked up the gift cards too. So that was awesome. It was so much fun. And it was the first time that I'd seen some of them in person. I was like, oh my gosh, you're a person. <laughs> I've only seen you on Zoom. And so that was super fun and very connecting. You know, it connected our community and it connected me with my students to be able to just do that for them. And they, you know, I think more, it's more important than ever that students get that sense. Like my, my, my teacher cares about me more than just whether I turn in my, my work and what grade I get, but my teacher cares about me no matter what, um, and what my well being. 
So I was able to, I still had money left over. And I, so at Christmas time, I did the same thing. And I, but I said, okay, so now we're going to do another little drawing giveaway. And by the way, they never found out that they didn't like win the drawing that they all got one. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like you won. And, um, are you one of the winners? And so I did the same thing at, uh, right before we, we went on break. I wasn't going to do it because I was so super overwhelmed with grading and everything. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to do it and just figure it out. And I said, okay, so I know this has been a tough year for you guys. And I would like to do a drawing. Um, if there's somebody in your, in your family who, who might not get something, maybe it's like a parent because, a lot of times parents sacrifice, you know, and don't get anything so their kids can get something. But, you know, just think about who you might want to get a gift for. And and I didn't put a price tag on it because I didn't want to do that. But I said, so who would you get a gift for? And then what would you give them? And I only had five students, five students that entered, which I thought was kind of interesting. And I don't know if they just felt like, you know, we have too much need, you know, or, or we're okay. We don't, we don't need anything or they're embarrassed. So yeah. So when one kid said, I would like to get my mom a desk lamp. And then another girl said, I want to get my dad a blanket so he can stay warm. And, and then another girl said, my mom and dad have sacrificed so much for me with my health issues and they really deserve to have something. And so the conversations that happened after that, because I was like, okay, well, help me pick the thing out. And so for most of them, I ended up just being able to pick something out online. They, they picked something out online and they sent me the link. And I, so I was able to set, just send it right to their house so they could get it and wrap it up and give it from them to their parent. But I was able to do all that because of the generosity of this community of people that are committed to giving to each other and to to help others in need so yeah so that's awesome and that's your teacher of the year (laughs) (laughs) well that was a couple years ago but yeah I kind of swooped in and saved the day well I think that character trait for whatever makes the teacher of the year doesn't mean it's a one year only thing. It's just the <laughs> one year that, you know, you get it just like one year Meryl Streep gets it, but next year it's somebody True. else, but it doesn't mean yeah. that she didn't do great work that year, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the thing that in, in addition to, you know, coming in halfway through the a difficult year was also that I, I set up with this, the pen pals. I think I told you about that before, right? The mice. My students have, I have a friend who is a, who's French and she teaches English in France and we got connected through people to people international. Oh, you like didn't, five, five I don't or six remember years this. Ago. Okay. So we, yeah, about five or six years ago, when I first started teaching um, French, we got connected up because of the size of the number of students we had. So we just randomly got connected up. So we started by having our students write to each other she teaches engineering in English to her students who are part of this European section of the high school. So they're like really wanting to be international. Anyway, so when I taught at Monta Vista, we did this exchange. We, we, this kids wrote to each other, but then we also 
did a physical exchange. So she brought her students out to visit us and to stay with, with their pen pals and to kind of get this um, uh, experience of, you know, life in the United States, life in California. Um, and then my, I took my students there to, we did a tour the first time, but then stayed with them in the east part, the eastern part of France, went to school with them uh, and all that. So that was, a, that was amazing. And we used a tour company the first time. Um, which made it quite expensive. You know, it was like four, four to five thousand dollars per person. Well, when when I went to when I moved to Salinas, I thought there's no way the students are going to be able to afford to do that. Right. And so my friend Amelie, she said, "Let me help you book some things. We'll make it more affordable and all that." So sh- I worked with her and I planned the whole thing myself. We stayed in a youth hostel in Paris for one week and we took the metro everywhere. I made the students like look up on their apps, you know, how to get to, you know, our destination through the metro and all that. And then the second week we took a bus, actually our pen pals came to Paris in their, in their school bus and spent a day and a night with us touring some things. And then we hopped on their bus and went back with them to Longres, which is about an, an hour North of Dijon. But my, I was able to take uh, 14 students, like it was seriously less than $1,500 a person for for two weeks that included airfare. And so I was, I'm such a bargain hunter that, and, and we actually received them and it was almost 30 students that came. I, I somehow housed all of them and they, they got to spend time in Salinas and the, you know, Big Sur and and Carmel and Monterey and all of that. We got to do all of that, but it was, and it was cool because I actually had this, the French students go to all four of the high schools throughout their time so that um, I feel like if you can't go to France, France can come to you Mm -hmm. and you can kind of have this international, intercultural kind of experience. And so really caused a buzz around the whole district but then when I took the students there it was just life-changing for them they you know learned how to get out of their comfort zone some of them had never been on a plane before just the you know it it opened their their eyes and their world to the opportunities and the possibilities for them for their futures and it made them think big bigger and and I love that's one of the biggest things that I, I love to do in my classes is to teach that kind of intercultural competence and um, intercultural appreciation. And I really don't focus that much on France. I focus so much on Francophone places, um, most of most of which are, are in Africa, but they learn about different cultures and not, not that it's better or worse, but just different. And that not everybody does things the way we do here. And so it took a, an exorbitant am, amount of effort <laughs> to do this exchange. It's something that's like, like, it's not a part of my job description. It's like way, way, way above, you know, what is required or asked of, but it's something that I feel very passionately about. And I know that it will enhance the lives of my students and their pen pals and do our little part to, you know, like for international, I don't know, peace and understanding and stuff like that. So 
I think that was probably part of why they they uh, nominated me for teacher of the year. So, so if I can insert my own little thing into your curriculum, I would say <laughs> yeah. that yeah. everything comes down to either time or money. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the first time it was probably a lot less time on your part because you spent a lot more money. You know, you, mm-hmm. you pay the travel company and then you mm-hmm. have your time, right? Yeah. But the more meaningful trip is the one yes. that you spent more time on and you save money and all that stuff and yes. and therefore made it more affordable so more kids could go. So the, yeah. all around, you know, the whole thing was just mo- much more rewarding. But yeah, what, what the kids really need to know is that all of it happened because you put yourself out there, you made the connection, you, you fostered that connection and you were open to the idea of, I want to do this for myself. Obviously it's going to be partially for you. You know, it's never 100% uh, selfless because you got a lot out of it too. And you recognize that it's, it's not like you said, Oh, you know, this will be a lot of work. This will be hard, but it'll be worth it. It wasn't ever like that. I'm sure in your head, it was, this will be fun. This will be great. This will be something we should do. Bottom line, no hardship, no nothing, just fun. And the way the world should be, you know, and I think it really stems from your love of being connected to people in general, not just your students, not just people across the world that you met once from this pairing up association, but there are so many people out there who wouldn't ever do that. And it has nothing really to do with teachers. It's just the kind of person, you know, they just, they don't put themselves out there. They don't envision that it's something that they can and should do. doesn't um, interest them or whatever. And so they don't realize how limiting they are in their worldview and their life and all that. And you you see the value in that. And so somehow that's the hardest part. I think somehow to instill that view of connection in putting yourself out there to your students that, yeah, that was a great experience. Yeah. We made it affordable so they could go, but fundamentally the the core, the little tiny, tiny kernel is the being willing to put yourself out there and make and foster connections. So somehow you have to figure out how to teach that. (laughs) And uh, obviously it's a lot by example, but somehow I think we have to make important life lessons, not just by example, but say like, come on, let's break this down. Like, how do we, how do we foster? Like, Like when you try to teach empathy, right? That's super hard. And it's that still is that kernel of how do we teach that you should care about other people? Fauci for the win for the statement. You know, it's just so hard. And people like you do that and open them up to ideas like that. Yeah. Well, and, you know, honestly, if yes, I enjoyed going to France and and all that. However, (laughs) going by myself or going with my husband would be a lot more enjoyable Mm -hmm. and a lot more relaxing. So it's really was a lot of work, a lot of work and like, you know, stressful and, you know, keeping track of these 14 kids who are used to being very independent, uh, you know, in, in, at home, their parents are, are working 
they are on their own a lot. And so it was very different for them to be having to check in and to be and not just go off on their own all the time and, and all that. And so, and we also actually ended up getting there the night before Notre Dame was set on fire. We actually watched it. We actually watched it. We were up at Montmartre, um, up at the, um, the top by Sacre-Cœur and there was this crowd gathering at the top of the hill, looking down into the valley, and we're like, "What's going on?" There's like this, you know, like unusual crowd of people gathering with their phones up, looking at their phones, you know. And I'm like, "What?" And we looked down, and there was this fire, and it was big. It was a big fire, and I thought, "Oh my gosh!" You know, for a fire to be that big, because we could see how how big the Eiffel Tower was. Um, and so I'm like, this is huge, whatever it is, it's on fire. And I looked at someone's phone that was, you know, looking at the news and, and it said Notre Dame. And I, I, it was very, very surreal and sad. It was like, it was, I had a flash of what it felt like when the Twin Towers were hit. Kind of like, yeah, surreal. Like this can't really be happening. This this can't really be happening. And uh, so there was, you know, there were panicked parents and principal at home, you know, trying to get a hold of us too, like, because they knew that we had just arrived. We had just, the first thing we did when we arrived was to get on um, Mouche, one of those little, um, you know, boats that take you along the Seine Mm -hmm. River. And we'd been right next to it, but it had been at nighttime. And so we're looking up at it in the dark so, and we were supposed to go not the next day, but the day after to have a tour. And I was looking up at night going, there's, boy, there's a lot of scaffolding on that, that roof. There must be under a lot of construction right now. Yeah. We never got to go visit it, yeah. um, but they didn't really know our itinerary and they just, because it, it was such a huge international newsmaker and their thought, and they were just like, Oh my gosh, our kids are there. Yeah, so there was all that to navigate as well, as well as the gilets jaunes, you know, all the those very bad protests that were happening every weekend. And the weekends that we were there uh, was one of the bad ones where the black box is a like kind of a violent little segment of, of this, of the gilets jaunes came into town and there were like, there were things set on fire. There were like, you know, all day long, the Metro was shut down all day long. We were, um, we heard sirens all day long. Like it was crazy. So we were like to, to tab, have students um, <laughs> there during these kind of major incidents was added some stress <laughs> to it. Um, you know, navigating them and, and how to kind of get around the, the issue, um, the problems, but also dealing with the people at home, like we're okay, we're, we're fine, we're not close to where that is, we're avoiding the area. And so, yeah, but so it's, it is, it, it is a sacrifice. It is a lot of work. And like I, I do it, I continue to do it because I know the value, there's such a high value to it. And it's 
I know how much that my, my students are going to benefit. So it, it does make it worth it. So there is some enjoyment, but it's mostly work. <laughs> but you enjoy your work. So they go hand in hand. So there you go. That's right. Yeah. So what else did you want to talk about today? Let's see. I, I don't know if I talked uh, enough about the the teachers and the 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 impact that they that they had on me. I think maybe you talked a, a little bit about it, but yeah, I, I I think that it is fitting that this is what I'm doing now because I can look back and see how much the the love and the care that that our teachers at Mount Carmel gave the the sacrifices that they made the extra the the fact that they went the extra mile to speak into my life and to say I believe in you I believe that you can you know do this can do whatever you set your mind to that um, kind of f- helped to fuel my ability to accomplish things that I didn't know that I could do. And so I I do feel like kind of like paying, I'm paying it forward in a way to be able to have that, hopefully have some of that impact on my own students. I recently saw a little video of one of my, my students that uh, she was a you know, French one student and, but she had very good pronunciation and she was very shy and so I pushed her every spring. There's this countywide concours de poésie, uh, like a, a poetry contest. Mm. And so I would, and you could have six students from your from each school to um, memorize and recite a poem in French. And the uh, Alliance Française in uh, Monterey Peninsula, they put it on, and they have judges and and all that. So. She and I even gave her a ride over there because she didn't have a way to get over to Monterey. And I didn't realize what an impact it had on her. But she, there was a little video right before Thanksgiving that a group of like ASB students put put out. And she was one of them. And she said, I just would, I think that one of the most impactful things was um, when I had French with Madame Hoefling and, and I did this poetry contest and it helped push me to get out of my shell and to be become more confident and to and she said it's changed the rest of my high school career because I am more confident now and um, I'm I'm not so shy and and all that and so that kind of blew me away I didn't expect to have one of my students be in this little video um, montage and so that made my heart so happy you know to to be able to hear that that I was able to do for at least one student what my teachers in high school had done for me. Um, it's such a pivotal time in 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 life, I think, for for people. You know, um, just who am I? How am I? How am I gonna break away from my parents and be my own person and and follow my own? dreams and trajectory and and all of that and so to just to be able to potentially be a part of that is very daunting and also I don't know I, I just I feel so thankful to be able to 
potentially have that role in students' lives. And it's, it's very serious. Um, it's a very s- serious role that I don't take lightly at all. And so it's more than a job. Yeah. Well, that's what I was saying about that. That's why that's the essential core thing about anyone who ever makes teacher of the year. It's got to be more than a job and more than just a good year. You know, mm-hmm. like we were I was saying about how hard it is to teach empathy, right? How hard is it yeah. to instill confidence? How hard is it to instill the value of interconnectedness and putting yourself out there and stuff? It doesn't matter what the curriculum is. Those are these underlying things that the teachers have to instill and they can, if they don't care. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, when I take a step back and I look at, at things and the way they, the way they happen, the way they stack up, it, I just, you know, I feel like it's, it can't be coincidence. You know, um, my brother, I don't know if you ever met my brother. He's two years younger than I am. Mark is my brother. He is two years younger. He was, you know, he did all the sports, wrestling, track, football, and, and stuff like that. And also just, you know, kind of brilliant anyway, you know, just took an AP class. It would, he, it was an offer during the time he needed it. So he just grabbed the book and studied himself and got a five. Um, oh, he's a bastard. <laughs> I know, right? Imagine. Imagine he's my younger brother and people are like, oh, are you Mark's sister? I'm like, wait, I'm the older one. He's supposed to be like Julie's brother. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what class but, uh, was this that he got a five in on the AP test just by himself? That was chem. Oh, yeah, that was chemistry. Wow. It was either chemistry or it was calculus. It was one of those. Yeah. Yeah. My son's the same way. He barely did any work. I think he got a C in his AP calculus class because he just didn't do the work. He didn't do the homework. He didn't care. And then he got a freaking five on the test. I'm like, oh, wow. As a as a parent, it's like, oh my gosh, you are just not helping me give you the right lessons. Like, what did you learn from that? I don't have to do shit and I can still get a five. (laughs) Well, yeah, Mark was always very intrinsically driven. and, And so he did get, you know, all those A's and the fives and all that and, you know, tested out of two years of college at Columbia University of all places, wow. and, you know, Johns Hopkins for medical school and all that. And so he's very hardworking, just, a, just very much a convergent thinker. I'm the divergent thinker and thinking outside the box and all that. And he's just like, he knows all the right answers, you know, the book answers and, and all that. But uh, when he, just another little story of you, what you could call serendipity or Providence, he, he went through and graduated from Johns Hopkins. And there's this computer dating kind of thing that happens at the end of, of medical school where they match you with where you're going to go for your residency. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he had just been top of his class on, on everything. And so a lot of his classmates were, you know, going to Stanford, going to Harvard, going to Johns Hopkins or Columbia or whatever for their, for their, um, uh, residencies after medical school. And so you go around the country and you interview with different places. Mm-hmm. And so then you rate them and they rate you. And then the computer kind of puts it all together. And so in his case, number one, didn't match up. Number two, didn't match up. Number three, didn't match up. And it jumped down to like number seven or eight hmm. 
on the list for him, which was devastating. He was because he's used to, you know, being able to excel and do whatever and accomplish whatever he wants to do. So that was very, very like a very dark time for him because he ended up in at rainbow babies and children's hospital in Cleveland. Hmm. And he was like, what the heck I've worked so hard. And it ended up turning out that a lot of his friends who had gotten the residencies in these prestigious, prestigious places didn't have a great experience. He had an awesome experience, but it wasn't until he got married the weekend after he (laughs) graduated from medical school and they, you know, started their new life in Shaker Heights, Ohio, and they had their first child and then they were pregnant with their second child and there was a problem in utero. They, they determined that there was some issue and they suspected cystic fibrosis and it wasn't until he was born and my brother kind of, you know, licked his arm that it was, he knew it was salty and he knew that he had cystic fibrosis. He had his first surgery when he was a day old um, on his intestines. But it turns out that Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital is one of the top research hospitals in the country for cystic fibrosis. Wow. And it was at that moment that he realized, like, I was mad at God because I didn't get to go where I wanted to go. But he's actually shown me why I'm here. There's a, there was a bigger purpose for, for him, you know, not getting what he, what he wanted, but getting what he needed and what his son would need a few years later. Yeah. And so, um, I love, you know, that, and that ties into also, you know, the horse and his boy story that I was talking about before by CS Lewis, just that, you know, why did all this bad stuff happen? You know, why, why did you allow all this stuff to happen? The, you know, the lion was chasing me and, and I grew up in this, you know, these horrible conditions and, and all of that. And then, you know, this is why, this is why I had you going in this direction, uh, even though there were difficult things for, for this purpose. And so, yeah, that mm, just having that, that faith and that there's a reason for it, you know, that sometimes we get to find out the side of heaven, what that is. And sometimes we don't, but just that trust that, these things are all working out for our best. Yeah, that's amazing. So how old is your nephew now? Uh, he just turned 21. Oh, wow. Just turned 21. Yep. And he's had the best possible care. My brother's a doctor. My sister-in-law is a nurse. So he's had very fastidious <laughs> care throughout the years. So what kind of doctor, what kind of practice does your brother have? He's a pediatrician. And was he going to be a pediatrician before he got that residency? Um, he wasn't. Sh- well, I think by the time he w- went to, to his resident, by the time he did that, he, I think, knew. But maybe he didn't. He, When he was at Columbia, he, um, he worked for CAVA, Columbia Area Volunteer Ambulance, and saw lots of crazy stuff in, you know, Harlem, <laughs> Spanish Harlem, you know, lots of, oof, and he was like, maybe I want to be an ER doctor. He liked the idea of going and doing its job and then leaving and not having like lots of paperwork and all that. But then I think after he realized that he would like to have something that was more possibly nine to five and more conducive to 
family. <laughs> yeah. And so he what, and then he'd said, well, maybe I'll do, he, there were a couple of specializations, but then in the end he was like, he wanted to do something yeah. that was just wanted to do something more calm. <laughs> and he was like, I'm going to either do pediatrics or geriatrics because the people in the middle, I don't have any sympathy for them because most of what they do, they do to themselves. And so he just said, you know, like, I think I can have more compassion for, for children or for the elderly. And so he, he just decided on pediatrics mm-hmm. and, and actually that's another thing that that was such a, a blessing that he had that knowledge and that he is so knowledgeable. I don't call him for advice. <laughs> I have, I tend to have more of a naturopathic kind of approach to things. And we do lots of, you know, healing with foods and, and all of that, but you know, sometimes stuff happens and Eight years ago, my oldest daughter, uh, we almost lost her. And so she was in her first year of college at the community college up in San Jose. And she called home one day and she's like, I don't, I don't feel very well. And so I just wanted to let you know. And she ended up coming home the next day and she started throwing up and then she started throwing out blood. And then she started having blood come out the other side. And so we called, called the pediatrician. We still had a pediatrician. We hadn't changed her over yet. And she said, I, we talked to the nurse on call and then she said, I'm going to have the doctor talk to you. And she said, go to, go to the hospital, go to the ER. And we did. And they were like, uh, I don't know, here's some antibiotics, go home. And uh, that was on a Friday night and over the weekend, it got worse and worse. And uh, we had a wedding. She was supposed to go with us to this wedding and she didn't end up going. We went, we was like 10 minutes away from home. So we felt okay being close by, but she texted me at one point and she said, I, I feel like I'm dying. And I was like, oh. You know, it was like so hard to have her go through this and that like, I felt so helpless. You know, we went home and then on Monday morning, we, we went in to see her on Monday and she said, I want you to go straight up to the hospital and I want you to, I, I, I would like her to be admitted. And so we did, and it went through like the doctor was like, um, appendicitis maybe and all that. And they were like getting ready to take her appendix out and, I called my brother and I said, so here's what's going on with, you know, with Julia, these are her, she had her blood work done and I sent him the blood numbers and he ended up getting on the phone with the hematologist and kind of just talked through the possibilities and, and it ended up switching from, you know, getting her appendix out to she may have E. coli. And so anyway, it, she was in the hospital for almost an entire month. She was in, she was in the ICU for 10 days. She ended up having hemolytic uremic syndrome, which is, which was probably, it was probably turned into that by the antibiotics that they gave her. And she'd also just had her wisdom teeth out and was on antibiotics for that as well. So she had no good flora. And so basically the one, the toxins go into your body, they, the E. coli, they release toxins into your blood system. And 
hemolytic uremic syndrome is where the toxins go into your blood and they make your blood bleed. They um, slice open the red blood cells. And then the, um, the platelets are like, oh, we have to go stop the bleeding. So then they go and they form blood clots in your bloodstream um, to try to stop the bleeding. So the only thing that you can do is by um, the thing that they have found that works the most is um, plasmapheresis. And it's something that I guess cancer patients, ha- there's, that's one of the protocols, I guess, for, uh, for cancer. So basically they took all the blood, they circulated all the blood out of her. They would spin it in a centrifuge and uh, take out the plasma, separate it, and then introduce donor plasma and then circulate it back in. And then hope that doing that every day, that at some point there, the, the body can fight uh, and get rid of the, the toxins itself, that they'll, there'll be enough more platelets uh, or more, I think I'm saying it right, pla- the plasma, more pla- the plasma can hopefully push out the, the toxins after time. So it took a really long process. I remember on day 14 that that was when we would look at her blood every day. And this plasma is supposed to be like the color of like, you know, half lemonade, half, half iced tea, you know, that, that combination, it was cherry Coke. That's the color. And so every day we would look at that and I took a picture of it every day. And on day 14, it started getting a little bit lighter Uh and a little bit lighter and a little bit lighter. And so that was the turning point. And we also looked at her blood numbers every day. And I would check in with my, my brother a lot. And there was one weekend, it was mother's day weekend where she, one morning, daddy, I I feel really strange. I feel really weird. And, and he looked at her and he asked the doctor to come in and, and it looked like her one side of her face was drooping a little bit and they rushed her down and she did have actually a, f- a few little strokes uh, because of the blood clots and uh-huh. yeah and her kidneys were were failing they had she actually had dialysis a few times during that weekend and I did not realize I just was focusing at the task at hand at meeting her needs at being right there for her and I didn't realize that how close she was to to dying, to having her, her organ shutting down. Um, and I think that was, you know, maybe a little bit self-protective, you know, like I didn't want to like think about that, that that would be a possibility. I just, every time something happened, I would, I had a prayer chain. I would send out texts. Like I, I put it on Facebook every year in May, I get these, you know, eight years ago today. And I would cry during the first seven years uh, when I would see those uh, because the memories would flat I would f- they would flood back I would remember how I felt at that moment and every year I'd say the third that was the day that she first got sick this you know the seventh that was the first day that she that was when she was admitted the 14th that was the day that her kidneys were failing you know like all these days I could just it was it was it's weird kind of trauma that you know I don't think the body can differentiate between like losing someone and not losing someone when you go through that kind of trauma, but it was on year eight that I was like, Oh, the third came and went and I didn't remember it. Mm. And, 
and it was it like it was like a little bit uh, separated. Um, I was a little bit more separated, like emotionally from that. And somebody told me it takes about the research shows that it takes like seven or eight years to um, like work through this, the grief and trauma, um, no matter what the outcome. Uh, anyway, so that was, I don't know, that was like how the, the most medically connected my brother and I were, uh, have been throughout his whole history as, as a doctor. And so I was so thankful that, you know, God like allowed him to have this wisdom and to be able to speak into the situation because it really, I, I, I really say that that was very pivotal, you know, very like time was of the essence in determining that they were trying to rule out these other things. They couldn't find, they couldn't find the E. coli in her system because the, the antibiotics had flushed it out already. And so it was, it was not detectable. Only the toxins were left. And so that's what made it harder to diagnose. So that's fascinating. Mm. Yeah. And, Mm. you know, trauma comes up on the podcast a lot and how long it takes to work through it and how it, you know, certain traumas just pass down through generations and, and who knows how long it would ever take, you know, since it's generational. So, wow. Wow. So how is your daughter now? She's great. Um, she and her husband and their six month old baby live up in the Portland area. Yeah. She, uh, we went back to Stanford after, mm-hmm. I don't know if it was a few months after or a year after just to do a, you know, a scan again, just make sure like that she didn't have any long-term effects from the little strokes that she had. And she's, she was only 19 at the time. So the doctor said, you know, when you're that young, the, the brain just makes new connections. And so it has not impeded her oh, good. cognitively uh, at all, which is um, a huge blessing. And we weren't sure. I don't, I don't know how this could happen where it could crop up again in your body, but I guess, you know, having a child, there's this potential that remember the doctor saying of it, you know, cropping up again. And so in the back of my mind, you know, I was thinking about that when she was, when she was carrying her little boy, but she's, yeah, been in great health. And so we're just so thankful that we didn't lose her and that she hasn't had any long-term effects from that either. That's amazing. So, yeah. 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 So so I feel like we've done it again and gone off on way different tangents, which <laughs> is fun. Which is fun. But please take take the moment to look at your list again. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, you said pivotal, you know, that your relationship with your brother and that he took the path that he did became pivotal. Just want to kind of highlight that word. Are there any other pivotal people in that list of a connection that you want to talk about? I, I mean, I, th- I think about all the, all of the big moves, you know, in, in our lives, if I hadn't, you know, decided after one year to, to leave Pepperdine and to go to UCSB sight unseen, I hadn't, I wouldn't ever have met my husband. And, and after college, after college, I had to decide whether I wanted to get my credential at UC San Diego or at San Jose State. And I chose to go to San Jose State to be 
closer to Jim. And then, you know, we went to Seattle for a couple of years because he got hired on this with the Seattle Fire Department. And, you know, those two years up there, um, they're just like little decisions that when you look back, um, kind of paint this map, <laughs> this, yeah. ju- this journey. And, and, and it's very intriguing to go back and look at that and go, if I hadn't made this decision to go here, then this wouldn't have happened. And so I, I know that that's, that's the way it is in, in everyone's lives, really. Um, but a lot of people don't examine it. A lot of people don't put those pins on the map mm-hmm. or as Remy said in hers, connect the dots. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the key. I mean, a life un- unexamined, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And uh, I think it's important because yeah. you can't f- see patterns. You can't see who you are mm-hmm. sometimes without doing that examination of the maybe 30 plus thousand view, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think, you know, when you're saying about your student that it helped build her confidence, right? If you look back and you see these things and you can say, well, I came to this decision based on these things, or I felt this way or whatever, you can have more confidence that you're going on the right path, that you are making the right decisions, that there is a greater purpose or, you know, Whatever, mm-hmm. or maybe not so much. Maybe it's like, oh shit, look at all these bad thing, bad decisions, you know, and yeah. this is your chance to fix it, you know? So I, it's important, I think, to, to look at these things. Maybe it's important always, but maybe it's mostly important because it's, we're 50-ish. I don't know, you know? Yeah. I have yet to have someone under 30 on the podcast. I would mm-hmm. love to have someone who's maybe- 17 to 27, somewhere in there, you know, that, and see how they map their life and how they connect the dots. And I bet it's fascinating where it's the same and it's in mind blowing where it's different, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for sure. I don't know if I, I shared this before, but this is probably a commonly heard verse, at least for, you know, people that are, that believe in the Bible and all that, but there's this, this verse in the old Testament in Jeremiah 29, 11, And it says, for, I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. And like, it's, that is an awesome little quote. And it's really taken out of context because the context of that Quotation is um, Jeremiah was one of the, the Old Testament prophets and the and God was speaking through him to the people of Israel. But uh, I know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare, not for evil, a future and a hope. They, at the time of that prophecy that they were you know, spoken to by Jeremiah, they were actually captives in Babylon. It was one of the times that they were taken captive. They were taken captive by Assyria. They were t- taken captive taken captive by um, Babylon um, and then in Persia. And they were like in captivity for a long time. Like sometimes it was 400 years that they were in captive. And so they were enslaved. They were not in their homeland. They were uh, away. They were suffering and they would be there for 70 more years before God would, would free them and would fulfill what he said to them. And so, you know, my, 
takeaway for that is that sometimes we're in, in difficult times and we, we aren't um, like saved out of our circumstances right away. But I, you know, I, I believe that God always um, takes our brokenness and our trauma, our tragedy, and is able to make something beautiful out of it, even if it's not right away. And he is good. We're in this broken world, but redemption is his specialty. He's the ultimate recycler or upcycler and um, kind of takes like trash things that we mess up and, and all that and can um, turn it into beautiful treasure. And, and so that, that gives me hope, you know, I can look at the, the circumstances, you know, um, in the past and in the present of my own life of, of our society and in general, you know, people's lives around me and all that, and see that in a, try to see that in a, in a bigger view that this is, this situation is, is temporary and that it's not ultimate and that there's good that's going to come out of it. And I can't see that right now. We can't see that right now, maybe, but there's, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a picture of hope and to, to not be just, just to not put hope in our circumstances and, and what we see around us, but there's something bigger that's, that's kind of my, I don't know. It's the, the, I think in this season too, this it's, uh, it's easy to, there's a lot of hopelessness. There's a lot of despair, a lot of depression. Um, there's a lot of, of sadness, you know, that happens around the holidays. And yeah, I, I think that looking to, for me, looking to, to Christ and, that that just infuses hope into an otherwise dark and dis- depressing <laughs> situation. So, well, when you were talking, it it reminded me of something that I couldn't think of what it was. So I had to look it up. Mm-hmm. Have you heard kintsugi? My pronunciation might be wrong, but kintsugi is the Japanese art of putting broken pottery pieces back together with gold. Ah, wow, nice. And it's. It's built on the idea that embracing flaws and imperfections, you can create a even stronger and more beautiful piece of art. Mm. So mm. I will leave that. And I think you should go and look at some of the art. I love that. That's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Oh, Japanese have such a great aesthetic like that. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Well, it was nice talking to you again. I'm glad you got this opportunity to tell me different things and I love that we went to different places than we even thought we were gonna go (laughs) yeah I love it I love it it's fun to to catch up and talk about deep things and yeah so so please walk away from today feeling better about (laughs) I I hated how you felt last time yeah I know I did too so thanks for spending another hour with me and, and uh, pushing out away all that badness. So yeah, that's good. And yeah. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Welcome. <laughs> I hope you have a wonderful new year and um, just get to convalesce um, with a good book. goes fast. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh sev- the Count of Monte Cristo. I think this is your oh, time. Yeah, that's still that. Yeah, that's still on my list for the new year, for sure. Yeah. Um, 
I'm not quite ready to break <laughs> that open. But thank you for holding me accountable to that. It's still, and I, I told another friend about how it's on my list for the year. And he said, oh, it's on my list too. So awesome. Be sure you yeah. read the unabridged version. Oh, I don't read abridged. Okay, good. I don't see the point. Those things shouldn't exist. No, absolutely not. It's travesty. No. It is. Yeah. So I will tell you when I start cracking it open. Yes, please do. Yes. Yeah. Tell me your ahas. Oh my gosh. Did I actually put it on my, it's so sad that I, I wish that I could sit down and just read a book, but at this stage in my life, I just can't. And so I'm depending on audible <laughs> to get me back into the, you know, I've got nonfiction and fiction in here as well. And just to get me back into the the literary world, which I love so much. So I do have, I just yesterday got the French Comte de Monte Cristo. So I'm uh-huh. um, going to, um, since I have tackled already the unabridged English version, I'm going to tackle the French version this time, which will be wonderful. And I assume you'll know at least, I don't know, 90, 95% of all the words in there, right? Do you think you have, because it's so. not modern day you know, right. Vocabulary. Right. Yeah. I hope so. And it is helpful that I have a, a basis of having already read it in English. So I, you know, understand the story. It's kind of like when you like read Charles Dickens with uh, like five different storylines, like weaving in and out of each other. It's so actually so helpful to watch like the BBC, you know? Yeah story of it to watch it first to get all of those and then when you read it and it's so intricate and it's so complicated you can uh, understand it better because you've you've already seen it in action and you kind of get the basic plot line so I I see that in a similar vein yeah and I I always taught people when they would come in to buy a required reading book that I knew they had no interest in and they were going to struggle through I would say look watch the movie first. Now don't punk out and don't read it right? because you're not going to get everything and you'll get a bad grade, Yeah, yeah. but you will understand it so much yes. more. If you have a foundation, you can visualize some of the characters, you know, sure. and it's, it, it's just the way to go because your brain can process it. And I would tell people all the time, like the way you're supposed to be a student, mm-hmm. let's put it that way, is you get the, say the syllabus, right? And you know that on on Wednesday this week, you're going to be covering chapter three. Guess what? You're supposed to read chapter three before you get to class. (laughs) And they're like, no, really? I'm like, yeah. (laughs) Because then you'll actually understand what the teacher is talking about. You can't come in with no idea, absorb Mm -hmm. it, and then just move on to chapter four. You can't do that. And they're like, shit, that's a lot of work. I'm like, yeah. Also, also another thing, always read the whole test over. Mm -hmm. Before you go back to the first question, or sometimes I would do the the test backwards from the last question Mm -hmm. to the front. Okay. Okay. And I'm not, I'm not like, you know, a great student. I just have figured out these life hacks kind of thing. Sure. Yeah. You know, when my kids were younger, I used to say, you have to read the book first before I let you watch the movie. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I had, um, I I taught English in the earlier years and I had an, an English, a master teacher who said to, who said the opposite. And I was like, why, why that's so I've, I've never done that. And she's like, well, the, the book will oftentimes ruin the movie. Yes. 
but the movie will never ruin the book. Right. If you see it in that order, for sure. I tell people yes. that all the time yes. that, that you can, <sighs> you can appreciate them both independently yeah. when you do it that way. But right. when you do it the other way, yeah, that movie is like, ah, like I will never, ever, ever two two particular ones. Uh, Handmaid's Tale, the one that was done in like the mm-hmm. 80s, mm-hmm. terrible, absolutely mm-hmm. ruins the book. Mm-hmm. And East of Eden, same thing. Okay. I remember we, in AP English, we read East of Eden and then we watched the movie and, it, and, you know, it's kind of fun as a group when you watch it afterward as like yeah. this bonding, relaxing yeah. Sure. Sorbet before the next book. Yeah. But the whole class groaned when I don't exactly remember where it was in the book, but they jumped like 20, 40 years in like that. And we're, mm-hmm. We all went, what? You know? Yeah. And so I think the rule of watching the movie after was always for the kid who would, wouldn't read the book, you know? Because <laughs> right. yeah. they, they punk out and they think that. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I'm just going to watch the movie. I'll be fine. Right. right. So you have to have, you have to have someone you can trust to do it. Right. <laughs> and it really should kind of whet your appetite for the book, hopefully. So I've, I, I was, I'm like, kids, I'm so sorry. You know, yes, you can definitely watch the movie first before you read the book. It will help to give you context. You'll be able to navigate the book and really understand it better. And then it's also interesting then to go as you're reading the book and the book is, if the movie is based on the book and not vice versa, it potentially enhance your understanding of the book, but also like, wait a minute, you know, this, the movie went a different direction here. And, you know, like, I don't like that. This is, this is way better. And so they, you, it's an interesting discussion, the differences between yeah. the, you know, what the movie took out of you know, the detail that the book provides. Right. Exactly. And it helps critical thinking. I think like, why Mm -hmm. did they make that choice? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I can't remember exactly which book it is right now, but in one of the Harry Potter books, Mm -hmm. normally they take out things because they cut things out for time. Right. Yeah. This movie, they actually added a scene that's not in the book. And, Oh, I got so livid. Yeah. Like, like, okay, fine. Cut things out. Don't, had things don't make shit up that's terrible right yeah and that's what happened with that count of monte cristo the the latest version of that like the ending is totally different like it doesn't like what in the world this is not even the the same ending to the story like that was i was so i was so disgusted (laughs) (laughs) by that so i'm like don't nobody ever watch that yeah it's not accurate so anyway I will let you go and have your break back. Mm, It was great to talk to you. All right. Bye. Happy New Year. Bye. Happy New Year to you too. Well, Revelers, you've listened to two episodes with Julie talking so much about the importance of investing your lives in others. There is a big call to action in the show notes. As I was telling Julie that I'm getting ready to publish the second episode, she let me know that her local Buy Nothing group has come through again. She and her French club had a... Um, okay, so I don't know what the best word is. But anyway, Julie and her French club decided to try to get books, particularly foreign language books, particularly books in Spanish, for 
all of the students in the whole school, actually. And her Buy Nothing group jumped on board that too. And so far, she's gotten two carloads worth of books. And she's just over the moon, but they still need more. If you go to the show notes, you'll see the list of the types and age groups of the books they need, again, particularly in Spanish. There's ways that you can get books new, used, get gift cards, send donations, and her school address there in the show notes. And I want to leave you with this. I don't know what to name the episode sometimes. I would love feedback and what you think of this title. I thought it was super important to bring back the Japanese concept, which is the art of making broken things beautiful by repairing them with gold. And there's a link again in the show notes so you can see what it looks like. And again, it's from Japan and it's called Kintsugi. I would love to know what you think of this as the title for this episode. I am not sure I have hit the mark, even though I do love that art practice and I love that idea of that's what we need to do with our lives to take the broken things and pieces and aspects and make them better. And yet something's not quite sitting right with me about this title. So that is all true. But I could also use more interaction on any of the apps that you use. I need new followers. I need new subscribers. I need new downloads. I need new comments and ratings and reviews. So basically, while you're there writing a comment about the title, about Kintsugi, about this two-part that I've never done in two-part, anything you want to talk about, while you're there, you should do those other things too. So... Welcome to September. Everyone should be back in school either by now or next week after Labor Day. I hope that everyone has a lovely three-day weekend. And I'm going to try to get one more episode out before I go on vacation. And guess what? It's about travel! (laughs) Ha ha! Love you, revelers! 